I'm Matt Dixon, and welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. The mission of Purple Patch is to empower and educate every human being to reach their athletic potential. Through the lens of athletic potential, you reach your human potential. The purpose of this podcast is to help time-starved people everywhere integrate sport into life. Hey troops, Matt here with something a little different to start today's show. Goodness me, it's seismic. It's one of those announcement things. Yes, we're kicking off with something a little different today because as you know, I believe that whether chasing a world title or simply looking to get better energy in work and life, your performance is built on a platform of health. And we encourage folks to get there via a training recipe, which is consistently integrated endurance training and strength training, but also equal value placed on the critical role of everything that falls under nutrition and hydration and all of the elements under the balance of recovery, including your sleep. But one of the consistent challenges is helping athletes filter where their focus should be around those four elements, endurance training, strength, nutrition, recovery, but also helping them appreciate and understand the actual positive improvements when they get the recipe right? How do we show the measurable improvements so that when they do embrace positive habits, they actually can say, hey, I'm improving? Well, some months ago, I began chatting to Inside Tracker. And if you don't know Inside Tracker, it was founded in 2009 by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics. And using their patented algorithm, Inside Tracker analyzes your body's data to provide you with a clear picture of what's going on inside of you. And then it can offer you science backed recommendations for positive diet and lifestyle changes. So basically, Inside Tracker checks your progress every day, every step of the way towards you reaching your performance goals and living a longer and healthier life. Hmm, a pretty good platform to then go on a quest to get ready for whatever you're getting ready for. Well, I became really intrigued because it was so synonymous and synchronous with the Purple Patch methodology and ethos that I thought, you know what, I'm going to give this a crack. And I began utilizing it, as did Kelly, my wife. And then I had several of my individually coached athletes also get on board. And 100% of us, everyone has loved it. Simple, actionable, very clear, and most importantly, valid. It's really trusted. And I found it so much in line with our Purple Patch methodology and mindset. I just thought, we've got to shackle up here. We've got to partner up. And I kept coming back to the same thing. I've got to share this with the broader Purple Patch community of athletes. And in fact, no, I need to share this with everyone that buys into our way of thinking, whether they're coached by us or otherwise. And so the team inside Tracker and I chatted. And more and more after several conversations, we just said, this is so authentic, so organic. It's such a shared ethos of trying to help people perform no matter what their quest so we're going to share it with you. And over the coming months, you're going to hear a lot about Inside Tracker. And the reason for that is I'm excited to announce that they are our very first official partner for this show. We are committed on this show not to just selling product advertising because we see our role as really important to filter the noise and provide unbiased performance counsel. But Inside Tracker fits squarely into this ethos. They're not peddling supplements or magic pills. Instead, 
they are placing world-class counsel and advice on where to place your focus so that you can actually build a platform of health. And then they help you measure it so that you can see the achievable gains. And so to kick this relationship off, they're stepping up on your behalf. Because for a limited time, Purple Patch listeners can get 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store. 25% off anything. I think that sounds quite nice, don't you? All you need to do is head to insidetracker.com slash purple patch or one word, and you need to enter a code, and I'm going to give it to you right at the start of the show. Purple Patch Pro 25. That's Purple Patch Pro 25, the numbers, and you can get on board. By the way, for you guys that are listeners, and I know that are in the many out there, if you're a coach, a trainer, a registered dietitian, or any other health and wellness practitioner, you also can get on board with these folks. And I'm going to give you a little insight here because I thought I'd share the wealth. It might be good for you and your athletes or your people that you help. You can go through, and they have a new program called Inside Tracker Pro, which is very, very helpful for you folks. In addition to helping your clients perform better than ever with Inside Tracker Pro, you'll also get discounts and even get a chance to earn revenue. That seems good. Plus, you'll get free access to the Inside Tracker Pro Resource Center and the Personal Coach Dashboard for secure access to your athletes' Inside Tracker results and recommendations. We utilize this, it's very, very helpful and really, really enjoyable for the athletes as well. All you need to do is head to insidetracker.com slash purple patch to get started on that Inside Tracker Pro as well. It should be good, but now, today, we've got a cracking show for you. A little bit of entertainment, insight, and inspiration with the one and only Mark Allen, six-time Ironman world champion. Let's get on with the show. Here's a little bit more of me. And welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. As ever, your host, Matt Dixon. And here we are. Today, there's no the bleeding neck of you. There's no word of the week. There's no squatty updates. All we have is the one, the only, Mark Allen. Six-time Ironman world champion. And this is a coaching conversation. This is one that you won't want to miss because many of you guys will have followed or heard of the Collins Cup, the inaugural event put on by the Professional Triathletes Organization. And today, Mark and I have an absolutely unfiltered discussion on the good, the bad, the ugly, and the future of this really quite magical event. Mark was one of the captains, so he was on site in Slovakia, and he got the down and dirty. He got to see on the inside, and you are going to be stunned by some of the things he tells you. I absolutely love this discussion. But on top of this, we also look forward to the Ironman 70.3 World Championships in St. George in just a week or so's time. And we talk about the event, a championship mindset, and we even give our insights into some of the professional athletes that have really impressed us that we're looking out for at this event and, of course, into the future. And what you're going to hear is not just Mark Allen, Ironman world champion. You are going to hear the genuine side of him with all of his cracking sense of humor, amazing insights, and what a wonderful person he is. 
it gets a little crazy sometimes, folks. It's a lot of fun. And the fact that I'm talking to a world champion and calling for security at the same time, well, that should tell you something. I think you're going to love this show. You don't have to be a triathlete to enjoy it. It's a great conversation, a lot of fun. And stay tuned to the end. I really encourage you because at the end, the last part of it, without ruining the ending today, the last part of the show, we talk about the mysticism of what it takes to genuinely be world class in any sport. We talk about surfing, we talk about the Olympics, we talk about professional triathletes, and the lack of understanding of just how good these people are at the pointy end of the spear in any endeavor in life. And it's a wonderful way to end this conversation. It's well worth hanging on all the way through. And so I hope you enjoyed the show. We're going to get straight to it. Without further ado, I give you the meat and potatoes, Mr. Mark Allen. All right, guys, it is the meat and potatoes. And as promised, we are joined today with a good friend of mine, but a legend in the sport of Ironman triathlon, Mr. Mark Allen. Welcome, Mark. Hey, great to be here. I didn't know I was one of your friends. I am. (laughs) Because I only got like two other friends in the world. So now I got three. And one of them, he's like a purple patch dude so i am lucky i think that purple patch is like you know today is better than any other day which i have to agree now okay hey it's not every day you make friends mark and uh <laughs> i tell you what when... easy, but friends are hard <laughs> is this is the way it's gonna go is it all right so i know that you are a mystical man you're a man i i can see all of your pageantry behind you and today we are going to do something special we're going to go into the into the past and the future so we're going to have to hold hands because we are going to talk about something that has happened the pto collins cup and we're also going to look forward to the World Championships, the 70.3 World Championships in St. George, Utah. And so uh, fasten your seatbelt, Captain. I'm not sure which Mark Allen I'm going to get. So, <laughs> But are you okay, ready for well, this? Uh, I'm secure, so I can hold your hand, no problem. Here we go. There you go. Good man. All right. So it's going to be pretty lighthearted, folks, I tell you that. But hopefully a little uh, inspirational and educational as well, particularly when we look forward. But I, I really wanted to ask you about your time last week in Slovakia. And for us, uh, I want to frame it for the listeners because we have a a lot of people that love the show that are not triathletes and maybe have never heard about this. So I'm going to frame a large event that occurred last week in Slovakia called the Collins Cup. And it was put on by an organization called the Professional Triathletes Organization, the PTO. And you might not know this, Mark, but about three or four years ago, a, a gentleman uh, that I got connected with, Charles Adamo, I was sitting in my kitchen with a PDF of probably 120 pages of this pitch deck around this thing, the PTO. And he had an organization with um, with a host of pros, uh, many, of, many of the pros that you and I know, Rachel Joyce, Sarah Piampiano, Dylan McNeese, uh, Tim O'Donnell, Miranda Carfrey, et cetera, et cetera. But he sat there and he said, we really want to create 
the Ryder Cup of triathlon. And we want to professionalize the whole side of that sport. And uh, you obviously, as one of the most famous professionals in the sport, have been sort of really intimate with the uh, the way that the professional sport has gone. And, they, and over the next couple of years of really pushing, there was a lot of derision. I think that the PTO was laughed off in the sport. And, uh, and most people just sort of gave up on it. Sounded cool was never going to happen. And, and those athletes that I mentioned, Rennie, Tim, Sarah, uh, Dylan McNeese, Rachel, they stayed with it. They didn't give up. But the one person that really didn't give up was Charles. And interestingly, we then went through, obviously, the last year and a half, COVID-19. And that organization ended up supplying real dollars to professional athletes they started putting prize purses to races that actually could happen over the last 18 months globally. They brought in maternity support for these athletes. And it was really, people started to kind of raise their eyebrows a little bit and say, hang on, this is quite good for the professionals. And then this last weekend was the big first real event. They're sort of proof of concept is the way that I looked at it externally. It's called the Collins Cup. It's a team-based triathlon race, really no different than the Ryder Cup in golf in many ways. And you've just returned. You weren't just there as a spectator. You were actually a captain of one of the teams, the American teams. There was the US team, the European team, and then the internationals made up of Canadians, Kiwis, Aussies, etc. And so there are basically 12 matches, six male, six female, and each uh, team would deliver one athlete to the match to go head to head, and uh, and it proved uh, very interesting. And I, I I wanted to start today, I guess, very globally. How was your experience there? Well, it was, um, you know, I as you said, I was uh, the I was actually a co-captain of the U.S. team along with Karen Smyers, who you know That's for right. those of you who don't know her, she won Ironman and she won IT World Championships and. She's still an amazing athlete uh, in her mm -hmm. in her fifties, I think now. But anyway, um, we were excited to be there with the team: six men, six women. There were four who qualified based on their rankings, and then two more who were actually selected to be on the team uh, as captains' choices. And interestingly, the two women who were selected to be on the team were not as high up in the PTO rankings as some of the other women, but we felt like they were more than qualified. Katie, Katie Zafaris and Taylor Nib, both Olympians coming off of Tokyo. Um, and so anyway, it was, it, it, let me just frame it. The end result was that it, it was more exciting and more impressive. And I saw more potential in where, where this could take the sport than I ever could have imagined. It was such an exciting day to see in person. And one of the reasons is that, as you mentioned, you know, there were the event that they were racing in was 100 kilometers in total. It was a 2K swim, an 80K bike, and then an 18K run. So it was a little bit short, a little bit shy of a, a half, half Ironman distance. There were, were three athletes in each matchup, six men, six women. The women went first, the men went second. So there were 12 individual races going on. And so you would think, oh, well, you know, if, if somebody's out in the lead and, and they've got it sewn, sewn up, then the other two are just going to kind of sandbag. Well, 
first, second, and third received points for your team. But then in addition to that, there were bonus points that you could earn if you beat your competitors by two minutes, by four minutes, up to six minutes. There were three different levels of bonus points that you could get. So even the person who was in third place was going as hard as they possibly could in each matchup because they didn't want to give away bonus points. Yeah, they weren't going to win, but they didn't want to give away those additional bonus points. And so, you know, when you're watching a normal event, there's first, second, and third, and then interest kind of wanes. Well, yeah. this, there were 12 races on the same day where there was a first, a second, and a third. And they all, they all went off in 10 minute time frames, 10 minute, you know, intervals. And so you're, you know, as a team captain, we had this board that had all of this incredible data. There was real time um, tracking of the distance between each athlete, the time between each athlete in each matchup, the speed they were going on each of those events. So maybe on the bike, the leader in one matchup is going 48 kilometers an hour and the two behind them are going 46. And all of a sudden one of them starts going 49 and then they're catching and you can see the time different differential change. And it was, it was um, like, I was glued to this data. And then we also had a screen that showed all 12 matchups in these little squares on this huge monitor. So we could see everything going on in every one of the matchups. Of course, on the broadcast back home, it was pretty hard to show that much stuff, but I am sure, I am absolutely positive that uh, as a first step, that those small things that could be added into the broadcast all around the world to make it as engaging for those back home as I was there live, uh, it's it's going to be the race every year that people are just going to be like, I cannot wait to see it. It's really interesting because obviously us at home. Uh, that, that there was a pretty big promotion about sort of revolutionizing the the broadcast at home. And, and and I think it's fair to say there's a lot of work to do on that. It's really interesting. You, you, you and it wasn't just you, it was the fans that were that were live on site. You actually had that experience. So, so they managed to do it on site, on the screens, direct to broadcast um, at venue. And you had all of that data live and multi multi racing going on that you could see everything going on that's that's really interesting yeah and, and you know it was kind of like i guess the the race equivalent of instagram scrolling in a sense because every 10 minutes a new winner was coming across the line of a, of a matchup you know every 10 minutes something important was happening it wasn't like you were in this event that took basically seven hours from start to finish to complete all of the races, all the matchups. It wasn't like a this boring seven hour day. It was it was nonstop action from the start of that first matchup of the women with Taylor Nib against Daniela Reef. Yeah. All the way all the way to the last very the last men's matchup, which when they went off, you didn't know if there would be something key going on in that final matchup that would tip the scales and put one of the one of the nations or one one of the squads ahead of the other one it was so all day long there was just this super exciting dynamic that was unfolding that really you don't get that same kind of excitement out of uh, a normal race where everybody's all lumped together in one one event there's another interesting thing just you know with the bonus structure because i don't think anyone 
prior to this thing happening, you sort of like, oh yeah, I can intellectually understand. But until you sort of, it, it wasn't until I saw the matchups before the race and I thought, oh, this might be really interesting. And they had, uh, you, you probably didn't know this, but they did a whole fantasy thing that was pretty good fun. Like a lot of the, our athletes got engaged of like, okay, I'm going to pick Daniela to beat Taylor, whatever, you know, whatever it might be. But there's two other elements with the format, one, one of which you touched on, but I want to highlight again, and that was that even in a head-to-head matchup, the positions might have been sort of cl- as close to finalized. Okay, Yan's going to win, and Sam's probably going to be second, and the other Sam's going to be third. But all three of them still had incentive to race hard because of the points. So you've still got a third place guy going for the podium. And then the other thing that I just realized as you sort of, you know, staring at me in the face the whole time, but there's also in a regular race, great, Jan Frodeno was first and Gustav Eden was second, you know, these really, really well-known world, world stars, but that developing tier down, and, and I'll just name a couple of them that are fantastic athletes, but are developing Justin Metzler, Joe Skipper, you know, people that can win races in their own right, but they had an equal role. And, you know, the the latter stages of the men's race in subsequent years, they might be the deciding factor, like Jackson Laundry could be the deciding factor type thing. And that's a really different place for him in many ways, eh? Yeah, you know, somebody that maybe if they if all all you know, all six guys from each nation, 18 men, if there was a race with 18 of them together, you know, the guys who are finishing 12th, 14th, 16th, probably nobody would even pay attention to it. But because of the format, everybody was paying attention to every single one of those athletes coming across the line and you know, like you said, for example, Sam Long, he had um he had a Terrible swim. Jan Frodeno and Sam Appleton worked together. They had this incredible swim. Sam went off course a little bit. He just had a lousy swim. He was way behind. On a normal day, he might have just kind of thrown in the towel and got, I can't catch these guys. But there was importance to keep that time gap less than two minutes or four minutes or six minutes. And so on the run, he went as hard as he possibly could. And he kept it from he kept Jan from getting that that final six minute uh, bonus that he would have gotten otherwise on a normal day, Sam would have maybe not gone that hard. The other thing that was interesting is that um, because of all of the real time tracking that they had every second uh, it was recalculating if they stopped the race, if they stopped the race and all the matchups at that exact moment, how many points each of the three teams would, would have. And so at the press conference, Norman Stadler, he said, (laughs) Not only uh, is the Europeans going to win the whole Collins Cup, but we are going to win every every race. And so, of course, you know the challenge was put out. And early on, because of the strength of our women compared to uh, the European and the and the international team, the U.S. was way out ahead in points on that on that calculation that was going on every once every second. And so, you know. It was Norman and uh, and Natasha Bodman for Europe, Simon Whitfield and Lisa Bentley, the co-captains for International, and Karen and I, and we're up in this booth together. And so, it, 
you know, the, the points obviously are like the U.S. is way ahead of the Europeans in the early early stage of the early matchups. And so we're kind of like, huh. <laughs> yeah, you're going to win everything. You're going to win this whole thing. You know, and so it was just kind of a fun banter back and forth as we're watching. Of course, the Europeans did end up way ahead there. The strength and the depth of their men's field was just incredible. incredible. You know, pretty tough to go up against a, a Jan Frodeno and a you know, a Gustav Eden and, you know, the list just goes on and on and on. Just incredible. You know, Joe Skipper, like you said, developing had a, had an amazing day. And, um, but incentive for, I think a lot of the younger athletes who are developing in the other regions to go, okay, Hey, you know what? I want to make that team next year. And I want to, I want to kind of settle that score and just show those guys that maybe first time out. Yeah. They started strong, but look who's coming on now. I, I think so, and that, that, that's actually a follow-up question. Before the race, and, and I guess I need to explain that this was an invitational race. In other words, there wasn't actually prize money for whether you got first, second, and third on your individual race. And so the athletes were paid for an appearance fee, effectively. And people were questioning before, what well, are they going to try hard? And uh, and uh, I thought, yes, they are. There's this thing called pride, and there's uh, and they're athletes. I mean, it's it's they're in their DNA. But I, I didn't even appreciate you, you were there, boots on ground. It's fair to say that every athlete didn't just go hard; they turned themselves inside out. Is that is that a fair enough comment? They did, and it was it was just the way that um, you know a lot of the athletes were commenting like on our team and in on the other teams they are going, you know, these guys or these women next to me, normally I'm not rooting for them because I'm competing against them. But because we're on a team this day, we're all trying to do the best we can for our team. So there was this unique team feel that normally a triathlete doesn't have. And then secondly, again, because of the bonus structure, time bonuses uh, that could be gained if you lost time to the people ahead of you, there was just this, like you said, a, a certain pride thing. Like no, nobody on their team wanted to be the one that everybody looked at. Like, hey, you sandbagged and you let so-and-so get all the bonus points. And because of that, we're going home with the broken spoke, the last place <laughs> trophy that the internationals won. And I don't think they think it's kind of a win. It's kind of a big loss. And so Simon Whitfield, he's like, I got the broken spoke trophy and I'm not buying anybody a beer tonight. (laughs) (laughs) He's got to carry that around for the, uh, the next year. (laughs) And, and we were, um, we didn't win, but at the same time, we were certainly happy that we also didn't go home with a broken spoke. So uh, I think the, I think the U S team overperformed. I would say that. And and I'm going to, ask a question about matchups, but before we do, because I, I have to ask a question around team and, and unity because triathlon is an individual sport and they seem to do a marvelous job of creating team spirit very, very quickly. And um, h- how did they go about that? You mentioned before we came on that people were effectively sort of staying with each other, dining with each other. Was it, was it pretty, Pretty. Were you surprised, I guess, how quickly teams became teams and the pride popped out? Yeah, yeah, I was. You know, I mean, we every all of the athletes and the support crew were staying at a this huge training center in Chamer in in Slovakia, 
beautiful 50 meter pool, indoor, indoor 25, you know, track, I mean, running trails, running, you know, just amazing strength training room. I mean, if you needed it, it was there. And we all ate in a cafeteria together. And so for me, it was really a unique experience. I think for the athletes as well to actually be in an, in an environment where you're around everybody else. Like I sat down and I could just, okay, there's 36 world-class athletes here. And I might have known five of them before. And when I, by the time I left, I had probably talked to at least nine out of 10 of them, you know, and, um, and I think it was like that for the athletes too, this chance to actually sit down and kind of get to know each other. Some of them, of course, know each other very well. Some of them train together, but a lot of them race against each other and they never have an environment where it's safe to just kind of let down. And I think even, uh, I, I could see it happening even before the race took place, there was a camaraderie that was general, you know, like all of the athletes there felt sort of like they were, they were in an honored position to be part of something that was a first in history. And so, yeah, they knew on race day they were going to be competing mm -hmm. against each other, but there was a lot of inter-team camaraderie. But at the same time, as, as the race got closer, you could see uh, at, at the dining tables, the inter-mixing inter, inter became less and less. And it was sort of like, okay, we're against them and we're going to figure it out. And so <laughs> it's just, I think it's just sort of like a natural thing. Like, you know, you sort of, end up bonding with your group, whatever it is. And there were three distinct groups. And of course, you know, in, in that, in that matchup, there was just kind of this thing like, okay, I have to uphold my end of this bargain of being part of this group. And it just became a really unique uh, experience and a, a great way to get to actually hang out and see that all of these athletes are real people they have their desires, they have their, their goals, their dreams, their visions, they have their fears, they have their doubts, they have their things they're working on, and they have their strengths that they know they already have put in place. And it, it, um, it was also exciting to see a, a lot of the, you know, obviously Jan Frodeno, he's, he's sort of the grandfather of the sport now. He's kicking everybody's ass. He's yeah. 40 years old. How do you, you know, everybody's like, still like, how do you do that? And then there's, you know, Lionel Sanders, who had come off of Ironman Copenhagen getting second place six days before the Collins Cup. And he ended up somehow crushing uh, Sebastian Keenley and a Andrew Starkowitz, who were both incredible, incredible um, bikers. And, you know, at least one of those guys should have beaten him, you know, if not both of them. Yeah. But he just pulled something out of, out of his hat that, you know, uh, Impressive. Sebastian Keenley goes, that was effing incredible he goes i don't know how he did it and so you you just had all of these these different stories that took place and these different dynamics that were happening and you know i, I mean i have for me i have to say the 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 race of the day that was the biggest surprise and the most incredibly inspiring uh thing was seeing taylor nib race 23 years old She'd never raced Daniela Reef before at the at the opening ceremony where the matchups were picked. You know, Europeans, they put in Daniela. And so we knew that if we had the opportunity to match her up, that we were going to we were going to put um, Taylor against Daniela because Taylor is, is a, a young athlete who 
she she has no filter and she has no fear. And if she likes something, she will tell you. If she doesn't like something, she will tell you. If she has a question about something, she will not be afraid to ask you. And she has this just <laughs> reservoir of energy that's just like bursting to come out, you know, like you, you, mm -hmm. you have those days where you wake up and you're like, oh man, I'm kind of tired. <laughs> I don't think she has those days. I think she wakes up and goes, how do I keep this from just like not blowing over the whole world today? Ladies and gentlemen, I'm ready to do something amazing. And so she, when we announced that she was going to be racing Daniela, she's like, okay, yeah, cool. Uh, yeah. So, okay. Right on. Here we go. You know, she, and Daniela had a, she, she was not hurt a hundred percent. She was sick. She had some physical issues going on, but, um, Taylor's time, if you match it up against the other women, she would, she was, her time was still over three minutes faster than the next fastest woman. Just fearless, amazing yeah. talent, super humble, super innocent. You know, she thanked Karen and I in an email after the event and, um, yeah, she's she's the future of the sport. So that kind of attitude. She's very very professional. She looks at every aspect aspect of how do I get better? How do I how do I train better? How do I prepare better? How do I recover better? How do I get the right mindset? How do I work on my mind so that I have a positive attitude? And it was funny because she there was a one of the the pro men or one of the men in, uh, on our squad was mentioned a little something about his matchup prior to it. And he's kind of like, oh, I don't know. It's, it's a tough one. And she goes, Hey, if you have that attitude, you, there's no way you're going to win. You know, it's just like, you're right. <laughs> yeah. So. yeah. Well, it's, it's really interesting because some years ago, um, I had an athlete that, uh, I, where, where was it? Oh, it, it was the Chattanooga 70.3 World Championships and Daniela had come through and she was an incredibly strong athlete. And, and I'll never forget the race uh, because I happened to be basically standing where this occurred. The, a group of eight or nine athletes came out of the water about a minute up and Daniela rode up to them and rode by and no one made, and it's very easy to stand on the sidelines and look at the other athletes and say, oh, you know, and it's the last thing I would do as a coach. But in this point, there wasn't anyone that had any courage in a way to at least go and try and say, okay, let, let's, let's, for, for a hundred yards, let alone, you know, a mile mm -hmm. to stay on a wheel. And it's, it's a, a mind shift of, her her presence of who she was already had the other athletes broken is how I saw that and I was like yeah. you got to go it, it, like sometimes and and it's the whether it's innocence naivety or bravery but it's so refreshing to hear an athlete like that that just loves the competition but is also really professional and open and uh, and so and, and she was for me just unbelievably impressive um and after it, it, after yeah after she finished she goes god I'm, I'm so disappointed she goes i really wanted to race daniella and, and i she wasn't you know she wasn't on her game today and she was sick and i i just don't know if i'm ever going to get another chance to really race against her i'm so bummed that i didn't have that you know and i probably think she was the only one on the planet who would have come across and said that and it was it, such you know and it was yeah. a really cool way to that was her way of also honoring Danielle and saying, Hey, you know, she's badass and she's the one to beat. And it's an honor to have the chance to actually toe the line in a basically head to head matchup with her to see what I can do.
Yeah, and look, uh, you know, someone else that carries that spirit that I, I, I don't know, and I'm, I'm a big fan of his, but he, I don't think he's done a great job of managing his athletic progression, perhaps as well as he could. No, I won't go beyond that. But, but line, but one thing about Lionel that I really like externally, I'm obviously not involved in his programming at all, and don't know Lionel very well, but he wants to race the best people, and that spirit goes a long way. Of you know, I want to go and race these people to see. That's a really good spirit. It's the excitement of the challenge, not, oh, I hope he's sick. That's good. I might beat him. <laughs> that's, the, that's not what you want. And that's the, I mean, we, we won't go back into UV Dave. And I, I can't believe I'm even bringing Dave up in this conversation. But the, part of the magic of that was probably it was so much more rewarding for you with the tackle against someone else that was so world-class and such an icon of the sport. And it was a real battle and hard for you to go there. And we won't go down that pathway because you have you have spoken about that a few times, but uh, that, that's Once the mindset of a champion. You know, and that was actually a, a shift that I had to make when I was racing, Dave. In the, in the early years, there was a little part of me that was hoping maybe he'd, he'd have an off day. And that was because I didn't think I could beat him otherwise. And then finally, in 1989, I made that personal shift, like you just mentioned, where it's like, wait a minute, I want to beat him on his best day. And maybe I can't do that, but I want to have him have his best day so that if I can match up to that, then it will be something that's truly fulfilling and it will truly be a statement. You don't want that little asterisk that's like, oh, I beat him, but, but, you know, and for sure, Lionel, you know, let me just backtrack. Anybody who wants to be their best is going to be on the line hoping that everybody else has their best day because that's that is what will enable you to get the best out of yourself. If the yes. other competitors are a little bit off, you know, you can probably pull it out and beat them, but you'll go home and you'll go, okay, well, yeah, that wasn't, but that wasn't the best I could have. And I wasn't forced to go to my deep place of inner potential that I haven't pulled out before because I was able to skate by and, you know, get, get the win with... 97% or 99%, but I, ultimately it's when you have to go to 120% of what you have that that's that those are those are the ones that you will remember and those are the races that others will feel something really in, different and unique and amazing happened in and be inspired yeah. by. Authenticity of yourself with yourself, trying to be your best. Fantastic stuff. So I, I want to go back. Uh, it, the actually a question from a purple patch athlete james which i think is um actually from jeff sorry uh because you mentioned the matchups and i, I promised i would ask this jeff lipschultz bigger purple patch athlete and he said i'd love to hear the inside scoop of the strategy with the matchups did they know what was going to happen with the other team and how did you come up quickly answers quickly on based on the homework things like that so the, the whole matchup program had to head how was that well, let me just say the the matchups were um, there were there were two strategies that that the, the the captains could have chosen in the matchups. One would be to uh, let's say if you know if if Europe throws out Jan Frodeno, then we throw out our our weakest person because obviously um, if Jan's a favorite, which he was. And we don't have anybody that we feel, unless they have the race of their life, can beat him. Then why would we want to waste that person and have them get second when maybe they could be in another matchup and and get get a win? Or 
The second strategy and the one that all the captains ended up going with is we want to make each one of these matchups as much of a race as possible. And so the only way to do that is if they throw, if Europe throws out Jan Frodeno, then we put in the person that we think has the best chance of giving him a run for his money. And, and looking at our lineup, we felt like Sam Long was the one to do that. And so, you know, some people are like, well, why didn't you save Sam for one of the other matchups when maybe it would have been him against, you know, whoever, you know, fifth place ranked guy on Europe? Well, that's not exciting. We wanted exciting matchups. And so it ended up working out that, you know, we ended up having some matchups where had it been picked any other way, it would not have been as exciting. So I think, for example, one of the most exciting matchups was, you know, Lionel Sanders, Sebastian Keenley, and Andrew Starkowitz, all three of them often racing with the same uh, gutsiness and cycling ability and yeah. maybe not having quite run away. Yes, maybe not having quite the same run as some of the other folks might have or whatever. And so I, that actually made it, I think, I think that decision on how the captains ended up picking the matchups, that is one of the, one of the key elements that made that day so exciting. Otherwise it would have been like, okay, that was a throwaway matchup because we know Danielle is probably going to beat so-and-so. So we put the other two regions, the other two teams put in their weakest person. And, you know, maybe there would have been a few that were exciting, but it didn't have the, the way it ended up because of the way the captains went into it saying, we want to provide the most exciting day we can. And the only way to do that is to throw the guy in there or the woman in there that who's maybe never beaten that person before that, but maybe today they can do it. Mm -hmm. And that made it as exciting as it was. Well, on a, on a personal note with a, with, uh, from a coach, you know, I had Sam Appleton and then it, and it popped out and Sam was put against Jan Frodeno. And as a coach, before I'd spoken to Sam, I was like, oh, good. You know, like, what an opportunity, you know, like you've got to go and race the best. So same conversation we had before. I thought, I'll be interested, to, you know, so Sam popped me a call from, uh, from there. He's like, I got the matchup I wanted. And that's like, good boy, you know, good world. And and it was great. It's like, I, I, I can swim with him. I'm going to ride with him and I'm going to try and beat him on the run. Like, I, and, and if I get a chance, I'm going to try and break him on the bike, which, you know, you're talking about the, the, the you know, the, they would label him the goat mark. I'm afraid uh, uh, I'm going to say it, but Ian Frodeno, you know, right now he's the grandfather of the sport for sure. An incredible athlete. And he showed it again on the, on the weekend, just such an impressive athlete, but you got to go and race them, and it was it was fantastic. So, um, super stuff. So, I, I, one one last question. This this is from James, and if you're going to sum it up, it's it's done now. We we know that there is big steps forward that want to happen, need to happen in the external broadcast globally. Um, I think they had a lot of aspirations, and for various reasons, potentially couldn't follow through on all of those right now. It's really refreshing to hear that the on-site, they did deliver on most of the stuff that they said they were going to try and do externally. So, so that seems to me like, okay, proof of concept, really exciting. The data and everything can work. Now they've just got to get it externally. But James's question, he said, I'd love to hear Mark's take on how this inaugural Collins Cup sort of matches up. How does he see, how does Mark see this moving the step forward 
does he envision that it might help a generation uh, looking ahead? And then finally, what about this moment versus Mark's moments with the matchup with Dave Scott? So that, that's a big meaty question in there. But how do you see this going forward? Do you think it has legs and opportunity? It sounds like you do. I, I do. You know, the kind of one of the long-term plans for um, the PTO is to kind of kind of model like you would off of, let's say, you know, tennis grand slam, where you've got you've got three or four or five hallmark key races in that are stationary, you know, so like in tennis, you've got French Open, you've got Wimbledon, you've got, you know, uh, Australian Open like that, you got New York. And so have, have, let's say four races in four different regions around the world where those are, those are the sort of hallmark events that take place each year, put them at at times where they're not going to conflict with Ironman or, you know, other other big races because you want to provide opportunities for the pros and then to have the have the Collins Cup go to different places each year so that mm-hmm. that is its own own unique thing that's sort of like the culmination of this this whole adventure that goes on the rest of the time throughout the world. I think it's very well thought out. You know, like you said, um, Charles came to you with this pitch deck of 120 pages or whatever, and uh, meeting and actually spending time with Charles, I this time i can imagine that that was a long meeting but um yes <laughs> in, in, in any case you know it's it's a plan that's actually been i think very well thought out there's been a number of kind of hallmark moments i think in the sport um obviously the the hallmark the very first hallmark moment was the first iron man in 1978 another yeah. hallmark moment was was iron man 1982 uh you know Julie Moss crawling across the finish line, ABC wide world of sports, capturing that. And it re- that really propelled triathlon mm-hmm. into the minds of people. 1989 um, ITU world championship, another hallmark moment. That was really the first cornerstone that, that really started to lay the foundation that eventually got uh, triathlon into the Olympics in 2000. Yeah. Um, that Olympics hallmark moment, you know, first man and woman to win a gold medal in triathlon. Um, I was with the guy, Simon Whitfield, over there Simon in Whitfield. Slovakia. I Great actually guy. was in Sydney working with NBC uh, when he finished that event. And that was that was one of, if not the most exciting finish I've ever seen, you, you know, with oh, him sprinting yeah. down that last little stretch, pulling away in the last moments, less less than a minute ago to go in the event, in the race. And he tried to repeat that. Uh, the year that um, Jan Frodeno won gold, which he yes. did yeah. with that same strategy. But anyway, and then I this, again, is another one of those, I think, real hallmark moments in the sport where another stake has been put in the ground, in the ground that's going to help everything pivot in a very, very, very positive direction for the, the sport, not only for the pre- professionals, but also then that helps raise the level of, understanding and gravitas for the sport in general all right folks first time i've done this we are going to be right back to the show in a minute but first i promise you the partner with inside tracker and so we're going to give them their minute here and it is a well worth minute because i think that you guys are going to enjoy this and i wouldn't be surprised if many of you guys really start to leverage up with the inside tracker product 
So what is Inside Tracker? It was founded in 2009 by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics. And using their patented algorithm, Inside Tracker analyzes your body's data to provide you with a clear picture of what's going on inside you. And as a user myself, I can tell you sometimes you're like, hmm, that's a little interesting. I think I need to shift my focus a little bit, either in the diet or my sleeping habits, whatever it might be. And out of the data analysis, they offer you some science-backed recommendations on both positive changes in your diet without turning you into a monk, but also stress management and lifestyle changes. And then Inside Tracker tracks your progress every day, every step of the way towards you reaching your performance goals and living a longer, healthier life. And as promised, for a limited time, Purple Patch listeners, you guys can get 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store. What a wonderful way to celebrate our first authentic partnership with the Purple Patch podcast. So, how do you get cracking? Well, all you have to do visit insidetracker.com/slash purple patch. And then we've got a magic code for you. Purple Patch Pro 25. That's Purple Patch Pro 25. And you guys that are listening, we know you have many coaches, trainers, RDs, any other health and wellness practitioners. You also can get involved with a gateway to offering your clients Inside Tracker via their new program, Inside Tracker Pro. In addition to helping your clients perform better than they ever have, with Inside Tracker Pro, you're going to get discounts, but even earn revenue. Plus, you'll get access to the Inside Tracker Pro Resource Center and a personal coach dashboard to secure access to your clients' results and recommendations. So it creates an authentic partnership between you and your client so that you can have measurable gains in their health and wellness. It's good stuff. Just visit insidetracker.com slash purplepatch and enter the code purplepatchpro25. That's purplepatchpro25, and you're off to the races. We are heading right back to Ironman world champion, Mark Allen. Enjoy the rest of the show. Yeah, you, you obviously humbly left out the, the Iron War in uh, 89, but uh, I'm going to add that in there because uh, the, the, the Ironman sport is built on on the shoulders of that as well, such a, an epic race. I'm going to add one that's, that's probably maybe a sub point, or, or but something else that I think captured a lot of people's imagination of potential was the team relay in Tokyo. I think yeah. it was the first night people saw that and were like, oh, that's entertaining. And, uh, you know, that that really, that might end up being quite interesting as well, because I, I think what it did was shifts people's, in the same way, it really was a wonderful timing of that. And then the Collins Cup, where it, similar to the ITU in, in 89, where it opened up, wow, this format, et cetera, it's, there is plasticity in how the sport can actually occur and it can be really compelling. And that's really cool. It's sort of evolution. It's retaining the purity of the sport, but also with a little bit of evolution to try and make it more exciting, et cetera, et cetera. So um, maybe that would be that, but wonderful. Well, what we, we, we talked a lot and it's going to be really exciting to see. I, I know that they're very excited to announce next year's events. And I know that there's a, a couple of more events coming, I think, are 
obviously the Collins Cup repeat, but I think there's going to be a couple of other events coming. But we want to move on now to the future. I promised you time travel. We're going to uh, talk about the 70.3 World Championships and hopefully give a little bit of advice over the next 10 or 15 minutes to athletes that are participating there. And I guess I'll, I'll kick it off to say, look, it's a, it's a unique World Championships in the fact that it is occurring in the midst of a pandemic. And uh, we've got a lot of athletes, particularly at the amateur level, that cannot attend. And I, I want to say some real empathy, I think, from both of us for those athletes that have qualified and cannot because of logistics or obviously the restrictions around the pandemic, cannot attend in St. George, Utah. With the fact that this is happening, with the fact that um, f- that it's got somewhat of a, I'm not saying it's an asterisk around it, but it, it, it is, it's an event that's happening without some of the globe not being able to participate in the World Championship. Do you have any special mindset or advice for people that are able to attend this this race? Well, I, you know, the, the thing to remember about this year's race when you're there, if you are competing, is that it's it's just like any other race that you've done. You know, yeah. you're going to you're going to get up race morning. You're going to be prepared the night before. You're going to have the same nerves. You're going to um have to go through the same process on race day to, to pull out the best that you can. And all of the, all of the things that have gone into making it difficult, maybe even for you to get there yourself or all of, you know, the people who can't because of travel restrictions and maybe the, the, the field is the makeup of the field is different than it normally would be. Of course, the men and women are racing on the same day, which also is a, a different dynamic than we have seen in, in, in the last few years at 70.3 Worlds. It's still a race like any other race that you've done. It's going to require being very, very strategic with your pacing because the course is difficult in the sense of being uh, the kind of course where you don't get into a rhythm the way you can on other places. It's not flat. It's not hilly. It's rolling and there are some hills, uh, but they're not super long climbs like you would get, let's say, in Nice. So, uh, you know, that kind of course requires it, it, it really demands a lot of concentration to make sure that um, you, you pace it correctly so that you don't get caught up in and get, you know, worrying about the, the upgrades and the downgrades and the uphills and the downhills, but that you continue to also make sure that you're nutrition is spot on that if you're you're going to be finishing later in the day that you are hydrating well enough because as we know as uh you know mornings are cool afternoons are usually a little bit warmer and so it's it's just um pulling it back down into and doing the things that you know you need to do to have your best race if you are racing there it's because you know how to train you know how to race you know how to prepare and it, so it's no different than any other race. If you feel extra nerves because it is a world championship, take that as a positive. Use that to your advantage. You know, when I lined up in Kona, I had a level of nerves that was definitely more than any other race that I had. But I also knew that because of that, it was an excitement. It was an excitement and it was going to help me raise my performance to a level that I normally would not if I was smart and use those nerves to sort of just be that little extra 
little something in there that was burning all day long and waiting to come <laughs> out. And I was going to make sure that I didn't use it up too early. Cause if I did, I would be walking when I wanted to be running it. As you know, <laughs> you're going to do a swim bike run. You gotta pace it. You gotta be a smart dude or do that. You gotta not go too hard on the uphills and you gotta make sure you eat and drink and you gotta be smart with your pacing you build on the swim you build through the bike and then you become a badass on the run <laughs> but you don't go too hard in the beginning because you know you got the long upgrade in the beginning and if you go too hard you're gonna be like oh dying on the end and you don't want to die on the end you want to cross that finish line and then you can collapse and everybody will be going like Whoa, he gave it all. And you'll be world famous. You know what I'm saying? So just be famous because you collapse when you cross the line. Not be not, not a second before. That's my advice. Security, security. <laughs> I mean, someone's someone's taken Mark's place. <laughs> Goodness me. There you go. That's all your advice. Good luck, everyone. Have a great day. <laughs> so <laughs> So, so it's so funny. Last, a poor, poor Jim. I'm going to throw him under the bus. I won't say his last name, but he's one of my athletes. Said to me last week, and uh, you know, uh, he's he's done St George three times, and he's like, how do I approach this thing? I said, pretty, pretty similar. He's like, but it's the World Championships, and uh, that sort of. Uh, by the end of it, of course, he he was laughing at himself somewhat because it's like it's still a race and it's still the race effectively that you've done really well at three times now. So that's uh, the, the, the banner and the title can, um, can be a monkey on the back when, when often it should be uh, something to be the wind beneath your winds, yeah, underneath your wings. You, you mentioned something there that I do want to come to, which is cool in the morning, hot in the afternoon. I think that when, when bike courses are challenging, You've always got something to look up ahead and think, okay, and, and you're engaged uphill, downhill, roller, uphill, downhill, and then obviously the snow, snow canyon climb. And you have this terrain in front of you, and you're not getting feedback of the temperatures arising. It's lovely and cool. And then suddenly you get onto the run, you're like, uh oh, I've got the sun on my back. It's 85 degrees now. I think a lot of athletes really with the distractions of the train can really forget about hydration on this type of race. And that that's going to come and kick you in the butt, particularly at the, I know it's not massive elevation so far as altitude, but it's, uh, it's up there and I think 4,000 feet or something. So, uh, I think that's a big factor for people. Eh? Well, and you know, St. George, it's the, the environment itself. There is very dry. The air is, air is dry. It does have a little bit of altitude, which takes moisture out of the air. So, you know, in the race, you can only take in so many, fluid ounces an hour before everything backs up. So it's it's going to be very much more important to really stay on your hydration in the days leading up to it so that you go into the race hydrated, not overhydrated, but definitely pay attention to hydration in those in those last couple of days. Make sure you have that. Make sure you take in, you know, a little bit of extra sodium so that you have that if you're a person who sweats a lot and loses sodium and then also have replacement for that out there on the course. If you know that's an issue for you. Um, but yeah, it can, it can be easy in big, big races to become over caught up in the, um, aura or the excitement of 
the bigness of it or the, you know, over importance or the importance of it. And you just do forget those little simple basic things that are like, I got to eat, I got to drink, I got to pay attention to how my body is responding. You know, I might have my strategy of how many calories I want to take in per hour. Well, that doesn't mean that you take it in every 15 minutes. Maybe you need a bunch all at once, and then you don't need any for a little while. And then use use the course profile also as an advantage. So if you can if you can take in those calories at a time where your body kind of needs it, where you're on a downgrade, you can let your heart rate be lower. You can absorb it easier than if you're trying to get it on an upgrade where your heart rate's really high. Just you know, little simple things that can the, over the course of the day add up to either propelling you to a really solid, great, amazing experience, or, um, you know, if you're not paying attention to them, they can kind of add up. And all of a sudden you're kind of like, Ooh, Matt Dixon told me I, I should have been taking care of this stuff. And well, I, I guess I didn't quite get it right. Uh, I'll have to come back and do it again next year. Cause next year they're having the same world championships on the same course so that's right that's right it is so 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 i want to get into some athlete questions because you you um talk about this a couple of these i'm i'm um not sure if we'll have concrete answers to the 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 run is on concrete but um first one i think is a a really good one from laura um she's one of our athletes and uh, as you are the uh the king of mindset uh, I'm going to ask you this one. So can Mark give me some mental strategies throughout the run, almost 1,300 feet of climbing, potentially 100 degrees plus, and, uh, and I'm going to say something about that before we go in there, but running isn't my strongest discipline. So I, I can tell that Laura has some so, you know, really emotional barriers there. I'm going to say a couple of things first. Unlike the run that is mostly rolling with the one bigger climb, Snow Canyon, the run does have a longer climb and also, I think, as importantly on your performance, a big descent and probably a little steeper descent than maybe people would like. So that's a big factor because you have to do that twice. So they are climbing and running downhill a lot. I, I will say around the temperature, Laura, that the even if it says 100 degrees on race day, that won't get to 100 degrees until about three or four in the afternoon. So... I'm not saying it won't be hot, but it'll be 85, 90, not 100. That makes a big, that still makes a big difference, but you have got, but the, the, the concept is still there. What mental strategies when the run is your weakness and you've got this beast of a run at the end, how should she go about it? Well, two things. One, if, if you know that the run is not your strength, um, try to use the bike to actually conserve a little bit of energy for that run. Yeah. People who, tend to be really strong on the bike and they're not as confident in the run. They, they, they often over bike because it's like, well, I'm going to make up as much time as I can on the bike and then hope that I don't completely blow up on the run. That's the opposite of what should be done. Use that strength that you have in the earlier disciplines, swim and bike to conserve energy a little bit. So maybe, you know, if she's a strong cyclist, don't show all of that strength on the bike, use that strength to hold back a little bit, so that then you do have the best run that you possibly can. And and to keep in mind that, you know, being a good runner doesn't make you a good triathlete runner. And if you don't feel like you're a great runner, you can still have a great run in a triathlon because ultimately the speed that you're going in a triathlon run is so much slower than you could potentially do if you were doing, let's say, a half 
half marathon run fresh, right? Yeah. And so use the bike to conserve some energy, a little bit of extra energy for the run. So maybe at 100%, you know what 100% effort feels like on the bike, back it down to a 97% effort or a 96% effort so that even though you're on pace and you're going hard and you're in the race, there's part of you that's like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, a little bit more. I got, mm-hmm, see that little bit there? Nobody going to see that till we get to the run. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and then use that extra energy that you have to then have a the best run you possibly can. And then you have pacing. I generally have found that I have my best runs when I kind of split the the effort level in thirds. Like a lot of people, you know, especially like if it's a two loop course, you say, okay, the first loop, I'm going to go easy. Second loop, I'm going to go hard. Um, it's better to try to split your effort on the run and on the bike too, but into thirds. So the first third of the run, you are very, com- keep it comfortable. You're just building into your pace. The middle third of the run, build up to a pace that's like, okay, I think this is something that I can sustain, you know, and, but knowing that when you get to that final third of the run, you're going to up it just one more notch. Often if people divide a run into two segments, they start going too hard too early and then, and then they get to those final couple miles and it's a real struggle. But if you divide your energy or how much effort you're putting into it into thirds, you're going to see that, uh uh-huh, this is the way to really pace this half marathon. Yeah. And I think that's important. And Laura, for you, when you're, that means in the first third, you'll be going up a long hill. So you're, you're going to be an athlete that might integrate some walking up that hill when the speed penalty is a lot less than walking downhill. And, uh, and so you've got to layer your, what Mark said there was so important, layering your managing your energy over the course in thirds and your, and that's the sort of your pacing and when you've got up and down, you want to make sure that you're carrying speed on the downhill grades, but then really making sure that you don't just hit the first climb and go, this is going to be hard and get into the slog mentality, because uh, that's obviously a big cost. Here's one that you as a more natural runner than me, you know, I run like a donkey dipped in cement. So um, maybe you have this. This is from Jerome. I thought it was interesting. OK, we've got some very steep ascent and descent. Um, so hills and, and obviously descents. Any big tips on there? But then what about shoe type? So is it better to go with a really maximum cushion type shoe? Is it better to have carbon blade shoes? Uh, uh, I have a couple of thoughts, but I'll, I'll let you take this one. I think part of that depends on on your body weight. If you're a really heavy athlete, Regardless of the course, you're going to want a shoe that's got a little more um, support, a little more cushion. If you're a lighter athlete, even on a, a course with a lot of uphill and downhill, you can still go with those lighter shoes because your body just won't create the same pounding. You know, for me, the most challenging courses were the the run courses that that had kind of like rolling terrain. I was much better if it was just like kind of flat or just long, long, long steady stuff where I could get into a, a real rhythm. And it's very hard to do that on a course. It's kind of up and down. Kona was up and down, but it was the, the grades were much more extended. So you actually could get into kind of rhythms. So on the upgrades, generally, um, even though you can make a lot of time when you're going uphill, the energy cost is a lot if your heart rate goes really, really high. And it's on, in running, it's very hard to recover from that on downhills because it's you're still supporting your body weight. So 
I try to run the uphills very, very, go into them right at the very bottom, just back off your pace a tiny bit to try to get your heart rate to come down a few beats and then build into it, build up into a pace that you, you know is sustainable. If you end up building into your pace as you go on upgrades or uphills and you find that, whoop, that's a little bit too, too hard and you you can just back off a little bit and it, you'll get it back into range. If you power into that thing and try to blast over it, the and all of a sudden you start to go too hard, your heart rate's gonna go really high, like way above what you can sustain. And then to get it to come down when it gets really high, you have to go really, really slow. You may even have to walk to get it to come back down. So it's much better to back off just a tiny bit before you get to the hill, let your heart rate come down just a little bit, and then build into that upgrade or that hill until you get to like, okay, this is good. And then you get to the other side, try to try to run loose, Try to run light. Try not to pound as much as you can, you know, and try to relax and use just use gravity to keep you going forward. And then that is kind of how I would approach that type of course. Matt? Yeah, and I would. Yeah, it's, it's so funny because I'm a big heavy guy, but I, I much prefer the high variant stuff. Bizarrely, I, I, I terrible running, and that's maybe because my run biomechanics showed themselves when uh, you could go into rhythm it's like oh it's not that good <laughs> you know I I could throw my engine at stuff but the one thing I'd say the only thing I'd add or double down on that was the running downhill I just want to sort of bold and double underlying staying supple or relaxed and letting gravity bring the speed a lot of people think I've got to go fast downhill so they run hard downhill and that word I don't think should come into your mind you're not running hard downhill. You're letting gravity pick up speed and staying as supple as you can and then light on the feet and the speed will come. It's, uh, then you've got to moderate it. But I love the building into the bottom. Let, let's switch gears. And um, I, I, I want to ask uh, one, one question around mindset. But before I do that, you've just spent, as you said, uh, a week with a, a, lot of, a lot of the pros there. And I just want to ask, I'm not going to ask for predictions uh, neither you or I are going to do predictions on, on any world championship, but this is a fast swim, a tough bike course with a lot of variability, big descent going down into straight into a run, uh, a run that is high variability, again, a strength-based course, but you've got to be able to run downhill fast as well. Do you have any insights on how, I guess I'll give you two questions. You can choose which one best to answer how you maybe see the men's or women's pro race panning out, or, or if you don't want to talk about that, then I'll say anyone that you saw over in Slovakia at the Collins Cup that you think, well, that might be interesting. We'll see what happens there. Maybe there's some dark horses to not necessarily win, but make a real imprint on people. Well, I, you know, I saw Taylor's name on the start list. So if she is there and racing, it will be really exciting because I think she's, She's gaining momentum. She's sensing her potential for sure. She has to have sensed it after Slovakia. And uh, to see her, I mean, and the start list for the women is, it's all time. You know, it's its gonna be, it, it's very, very deep. There's a lot of women who are, are so talented. And, and I saw that over there in Slovakia to be able to just, um, do some of the times and the, and the speeds that they were going over there. Um, and, and then for the men, actually the, the most uh, interesting sort of intrigue for me over in, in Slovakia was that Rudy von Berg was 
really, really sick. He was, you know, he was our number two rated man and somebody that we thought could win his matchup. He wasn't able to compete. I don't think he'll be competing in uh, St. George either. Um, and the alternate who took his place was um, Colin Chartier. And he's, he's a young guy, you know, he's like bootstrapping his entire pro career at this point in time. Um, but he had, he had a really solid race over there. And so I, and he has, he said he's been starting to hit numbers that are, you know, in his training that are like ka-chunk, 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 you know, going like that. And so he's just one of those young guys that, you know, probably 90% of the people have no idea who he is. And he had an amazing race in Slovakia. I, I think it will be fun to see somebody like him in St. George and to see like, hey, maybe he's going to be one of the guys shaking it up with the big boys. And all of a sudden he's going to be one of the big boys. He, he made me raise my eyebrow how he raced in Slovakia. I, uh, I saw that. I was like, ah, oh, I didn't know that much about him. I, I thought in the same way, it was interesting. I was chatting to one of my, my developing pros that, that I'm coaching at the moment. And uh, I was telling him about uh, George Goodwin, who, uh, who mm -hmm. was not in Slovakia. But I said, uh, I saw George at Nice. And uh, Nice seven, in, uh, when we were, we last did a, a thing together, actually, in 2019 World Championships in Nice. And I saw him race there. And, and I saw him run through the field, actually, and then start to break down in the back half of the run a little bit and sort of fell back. The guys came back at him, and I think he finished somewhere around 10th or 9th in there. But but I watched him race, and I thought that, that, that was impressive. And I, I really I keep an eye on him. He really impressed me. I don't know him. I've never met him, but he just really impressed me. And then he went and raced Daytona, which is a dead flat course and therefore somewhat of a strength course. And he really popped out and people are like, oh, where did that come from? I thought, I saw that last year. Like I, I got that. Be interesting to see how he can come up. Probably got a little bit of a point to prove with uh, 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 not finally getting a selection there in, um, in uh, the PTO. But yeah, he's, he's yeah, he was he was one athlete that I thought for sure would have made it then in the Collins Cup, but wasn't high enough on the rankings and wasn't picked. Yeah. Uh, that, that I definitely have my I definitely have my eye on him for St. George. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Be good. Because I saw really, him in Daytona the same thing. Like, oh boy, this guy can he knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. Really smart. I really like him. And and I remember seeing Rudy at Nice, you know, right so so well there and so impressed with him. Uh I agree with that. When when he, you know, if he's not in St. George, that that's a shame. But uh, but it is going to be it's the one that great thing about this race uh, so that we, we don't dive into things is, is it's now to the, the, the from an excitement of a depth of pool, the women's race, who's going to win that? It's like, wow. Mm -hmm. You know, there it is an unbelievable field that really stands up. And I think both races. It's a shame that they can't separate the races because they will both be tremendous races. They really will. Yeah, that, that does make it – that has made it super exciting to have the women race one day and the men the next. There's such a different energy in those two events. You know, Gustav Eden in um, in Slovakia won his matchup. He, I think he was in the second matchup. And um, his time was actually only 10 seconds slower than Jan Frodeno's. So – Everybody's talking, ooh, Jan, he won, which he did. You know, he won his thing and he had the fastest time of the day. And you can't quite compare times because obviously they're not at the same exact 
time of day, all this stuff, right? But uh, Gustav was 10 seconds slower than Jan. And so um, absolutely kind, humble guy, um, very, very talented. Um, you know, if I was to make a prediction. Yeah, yeah. you can. It's not that bold of a prediction. He is the reigning 70.3 world champion. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was but two years was, ago. But, yeah. It, it, no, it's true. And uh, I, I will say this for, and I, I'm just going to add this because I, I was, somebody was actually asking me this last night and I was trying to explain both on the men's and women's field, the, the, when you look at pro athletes in any sport, and the Olympics are a great example. I'll, I'll tell you how we got into this. There was some some uh, poll that was put out and some crazy percentage of the American public believe that they are currently fit enough to be an Olympian. I think it's something like 40%. There's this disassociation of understanding what it takes to be an Olympian in any sport, et cetera. Mm. And, I was trying, and so a friend of mine was asking me, you know, like, how good are these people? And I said, you, you can't quite understand like what their outputs are, like how fast they're swimming relative to just standalone swimmers, how fast they're riding now, how fast they're running, male and female. It's such a different level. And in fact, what it takes to be an Olympian, and when we watch the Olympics and you look at the people that are winning medals and, and you're like, oh, well, he didn't do very well or he, she didn't do very well because she was 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th. So you don't realize how good those are. Forget about the people that are winning the medal. It is, it's so, you know, if you take a premiership soccer player, how good they are relative to the very best amateurs. There are worlds away. And I guess to be great in any sport is or in any endeavor in life, the best violinist, the best singer, whatever it is, it is an unbelievable thing that we should really cherish. And I think that's a part of the magic yeah. of sport. You know, the, the thing that's hard to, um, that makes appreciating that so difficult in a sport like triathlon or swimming or running is that um, how good that, that person is, is based on the time that they can produce, the, you know, the, the number, their watts, all this kind of stuff that, if you're just looking at them, they make it look effortless. So you're like, oh, yeah, they're really good, you know, but you don't get that they're running. You know, you look at Kip Ko Kipchoge, you know, he's running a whatever, 440 mile for 26 miles or whatever it is. You go, well, he, he looks pretty good, you know, but you can't appreciate it because there's a there's a time base and they make that effort look so effortless. You go to a sport like um, surfing, which I I love surfing. I just two blocks from my house. I just go, I paddle out and Santa Cruz has a, there's a, a, a kid named Nat Young who was on the, the world pro tour for a couple of years. Um, you know, so he's one of the, the best 32 guys in the world at one point. And, um, you know, so there's me surfing. Who's like, I'm like just your average Joe hack. I can go out there. I can catch waves. I can do stuff, but you know, nobody's going to, go ooh ah you know and then you got the guys that are they never quite made it as, as pros but they're so good they're like a, a level up so when the waves get good and they come to your break you're like wow those guys because it's visual you can see the difference between what they do and, and and what i can't do and then this summer nat young showed up at that 
the break that I surf at a, a couple of days, two, you know, three or four days, because that was the best place in town. And of course he shows up where it's the best and he's got 27 photographers and videographers and, you know, the whole cliff is like lined up watching that. And so, and to watch him compared to those other guys that when they show up, I'm idolizing them. And then there's Nat Young, who's like at the, at the world-class level, the world top of the world-class level. It's visual. So you can see how much better that person is than you. It's hard to see that in a time-based sport like triathlon, but safe to say, if you could see it, it would blow you away how good these men and these women are. You know, when we competed, when I started out, I was building my career and my performance on the back of what Dave Scott had been doing and, and setting and showing us was possible. And through that, I was inspired and propelled to a level that I never would have been able to had I just come into the sport and there was no Dave Scott before me. And then there are those who I feel probably looked at what Dave and I did and they built their performances on the back of what we showed was possible. And then there's those who came after them and those who are now on building their careers and their performance off of the understanding of training and coaching like you and I give our athletes and um, you know the experience that we have as coaches and that the athletes have shown is possible. And now you have Gustav Eden, you have Jan Frodeno, you have Daniela Reef, you have Taylor Nib, and these athletes who are then taking that and showing people, okay, now this is where we can go. And there will be those who are on the backs of them when they retire going, they showed us now, we're going to show you what's really possible. Exactly. Well, what a wonderful way. That was a, such a, a, a wonderful way to finish this chat. I, I said, hey, let, let's do a quick 30 minutes. Let's bang our heads together for 30 minutes and have a chat about PTO and Worlds. And here we are an hour and 10 minutes later. But, uh, um, but Mark, I want to thank you so much. I'm looking forward to seeing you in St. George and, and really, really appreciate your insights on both of them. It was, uh, it was tremendous fun. So thanks so much for coming on the show. Super fun. I can't wait to see you and all the athletes out there in St. George coming up very soon. We'll see you there. All right. Cheers. Take care. Goodness me, what a conversation. That was <laughs> That was pretty fun, pretty deep. I absolutely loved it. As ever, he always brings his best. And it's incredible just to get under the hood a little bit of, uh, of a champion and how he thinks and, uh, and how he looks at life. And uh, it was tremendously enjoyable. I hope you enjoyed the show. For you guys that are heading to the Ironman 70.3 World Championships, we will see you there. I'll also be doing a lot from the course, a lot of pictures, insights, and maybe Mark and I will get together the day or two before the race and get a little powwow about some on-the-scenes reporting, as it were, via our social channels or, of course, via this podcast. Maybe we'll try and put out a little bonus episode. All right, to finish, over the coming weeks, incredibly excited. We are in the midst of recording with Scott Tyndall from Fueling. You're going to hear a lot about Fueling the brand new nutrition program over the coming weeks as well. But we have recorded and are in the midst of recording several case studies around some of the interventions of helping athletes perform better. And we've got some of these coming out over the coming two or three weeks. You are going to get a lot of education 
and filter some of the noise that's out there, all of the myths that's out there around performance nutrition. And Scott does a wonderful job. I've already recorded the first one. I really enjoyed it. That's coming up in next week's show. We're going to talk about a perimenopausal female athlete that's thriving and having great energy in life. And he puts it the best way. She's just becoming a better person, a great platform of health. And oh, by the way, she's also improving in sport. And so it is a nutrition focus over the next coming month or so. It's timely. You guys are always asking for more nutrition. Over the next six weeks or so, we're going to have three dedicated episodes to case studies in nutrition to help you. That's with Scott Tyndall from Fuelin. We are looking forward to it. But until next time, please take care. Thanks so much for listening. This has been the Purple Patch Podcast. And if you like what you hear, we'd really appreciate it if we share with your friends and really go the extra mile. Head over to Apple Podcasts or your favorite platform to follow, rate, and review the show. Your support and reviews go a long way to increasing our visibility and, of course, the exposure to time-starved people everywhere who want to integrate sport into life and ultimately thrive, just like me and you. Don't forget... You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Links to the episode resources and all of our programs can be found at purplepatchfitness.com. Thanks much for listening. Take care.